Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So last week we ended with a bit of a discussion of the so-called dragon man. And I actually wanted to finish that conversation because I think it's very indicative of a lot of the current thinking in anthropology right now. So if you've listened to my show, uh, especially on, I did one on human origins recently, you may be wondering, as I pointed out, might be true, whether or not H. longi is definitely a new species or may instead be a representative of another species of Homo, and especially one that was present in this area around the same time period, and that is, of course, Homo Denisovan. In fact, three scientists that were present Sorry, three scientists have come out with a counter-argument suggesting that the new skull indeed represents a member of the Denisovans rather than a new species. I have carefully read the anatomical and phylogenetic study, Silvana Condemi, a paleoanthropologist at Aix-Marseille University in Marseille, France, said. The published data leads me to consider this fossil as a particular fossil that could be a Denisovan. Antonio Rosas, a paleobiologist at the National Museum of Natural Sciences in Spain, agrees, saying the authors gave too much weight on some evolved facial features of the skull. These morphological features of the face may be, in fact, primitive characteristics inherited from a common ancestor, Rosas said. As a result, the Harbin skull could be associated either with the modern human clade or with the Neanderthal clade. So clades include species that share a common ancestor. Fernando Ramirez Rossi, director of research specializing in human evolution at France's National Center for Scientific Research in Paris, suggested that an additional 3D test known as geometric morphometric analysis might give a better idea of whether this really is a new species. They also note that the teeth could be compared to those known from Denisovans. And so the researchers themselves note that the statistical analysis fell into a group that also included the 160,000-year-old Denisovan mandible found in Shahi, which suggests that it comes from the same or a closely related species. In addition, the one molar still attached to the skull also looks like two Denisovan molars from Denisova Cave in Siberia. They also align with three other skulls found in China. The 200,000 to 260,000 year old skull from Dali County in northwestern China, a 300,000 year old skull found in Huolong Cave in eastern China, and a 260,000 year old skull from Jiniyushi Cave in China. 
All three are believed to be from a species that looks something between a Homo erectus and modern humans. And so it may turn out that this collection of skulls, or some of them, um, may turn out to be from an East Asian group of Denisovans. And so this wouldn't diminish uh, the importance of the Harbin cranium as a very important find. Even if it isn't a new species, Denisovan remains are very scarce. And we are learning that East Asia was... Uh, most likely an important place of evolution during the early and middle Paleolithic. And so, again, I did note last week that the, re that the researchers themselves who did the initial study considered these sorts of um, ideas. More mandibular specimens for the Harbin population or cranial specimens corresponding the to the Xiaohe mandible will test how close the Harbin and Xiaohe humans are morphologically, they wrote, while new genetic material will test the relationship of these populations to each other and to the Denisovans. And so they point out there that obviously DNA evidence would be the easiest way to determine the closeness of the various fossils. And even if DNA could not be extracted from the Harbin cranium, there may be another option. Proteins, which may last longer than DNA in the bones, could be used. Proteome analysis has been suggested as a way to identify Denisovan fossils, some of which may already be stored in museum collections. Because, of course, you know, that is a uh, reoccurring theme always on this uh, program, that there is a lot of material stored in museum collections that we have not really had anyone look at since they were uh, first excavated. And so it is possible that there actually are other remains out there that are connected to these new remains that we just don't realize yet. Um, and there are some researchers who suggest that all of these lineages are actually not genetically diverse enough to be considered separate species. So this may all be kind of moot in some ways. Um, and so there's a real debate. And, you know, I talk a lot about um, lumpers and splitters. And so people who are on the lumper side say, you know, the things that we generally associate with different species are things like not being able to successfully mate. But we know for a fact that modern humans mated with both Neanderthals and Denisovans. And presumably they would have also been able to mate with this new species if it really is a new species. And that means that they would most likely be better to be considered subspecies of Homo sapiens rather than anything else. And so it's really interesting to try and tease apart these things. Um, you know, there are clear morphological differences between the three, um, the three classes of um, hominids. And so Neanderthals have a different skeletal structure. Uh, Denisovans have different, um, especially molars, but of course those are basically what we have of Denisovans is, uh, you know, the most 
uh, prolific kind of fossil we have for Denisovans is actually just teeth. So obviously <laughs> that is where you're going to see the differences. But, um, you know, people are also have morphological differences. And so there are people who suggest that the difference in morphology of these different uh, kinds of homo isn't enough to say that they are absolutely separate. And of course, um, we're going to talk in just a second about some of the similarities for Neanderthals with modern, early modern humans in their cognitive abilities. And so for a long time, there was this idea that, you know, the Neanderthals were less advanced than modern humans and that, you know, modern humans came in and just outcompeted them um, because they just didn't understand how to uh, do these higher order cognition kind of things. But as time has gone by, we found more and more places where we can point to, where we can say that the Neanderthals did things exactly in ways that modern humans did. And, um, you know, the Denisovans are so new. Uh, we don't have a lot of any kind of material culture for them. We don't have any material culture at the moment for them. So um, we have a couple of places that we know that they lived. We have a couple of bones, but we don't have any cave art or any uh, settlements or any stone tools that we know they created. We just don't have any of that because we don't know yet where they would have been settled in a way that can connect them to any kind of material culture specifically. And so it may be simply that Homo sapiens once had a much larger amount of genetic diversity. And so basically it may be that all of these people were roughly moving towards being human and, or modern humans, and it was just the uh, sort of current model, quote unquote, that was the one that developed into modern humans and that those other morphological um, subspecies just were subsumed into the um, modern humans, into modern homo sapiens, and that it, they weren't that different from us. Um, but of course, there are differences. And right now we can't tell for, I mean, we may never be able to know for certain. Um, I've talked to a lot about how taxonomy is very fraught. And uh, so humans like to put things in very clear boxes. We want to have a Neanderthal box. We want to have a human box, a Homo sapiens box. And we want to have a Denisovans box. And we want to have a uh, Homo longi box. And we want to be able to put skulls and remains into each one of those boxes neatly. And that's just not the way that nature works. Um, nature doesn't believe in uh, specific little boxes that you can put things into. And uh, we know that from genetics. We know that these populations were interbreeding 
And we know that there must have been some success in those interbreedings because that genetic material survived into modern day humans. And so a lot of times you can have hybrids that are born, but they're usually not genetically uh, successful in continuing the line. But we know that they must have done because we have the... um, genetic signatures in our uh, DNA at this time. And so, you know, I really think that it helps us to have all of these specimens to get a greater understanding of the development of hominids, but I'm not sure how much of it really involves the sorts of clear lines that a lot of people want to uh, be able to put together. Um, and so let's let's put that aside for now because I want to talk about a story about what we currently refer to as Neanderthals and their artistic expression because, you know, as I'm saying, the more you learn about these sister species to modern humans, the more these lines blur. Um, And so we know that Neanderthals decorated themselves with feathers, drew cave paintings, and created jewelry. We also know now that they engraved patterns on bone. The discovery of a 51,000-year-old bone carving is described in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, and once again pushes the boundaries of what we consider to be possible by Neanderthals in terms of cultural and cognitive sophistication. Evidence of artistic decorations would suggest production or modification of objects for symbolic reasons beyond mere functionality, adding a new dimension to the complex cognitive capabilities of Neanderthals. As Sylvia Bello, an archaeologist at the Natural History Museum in London, explained in a Associated News and View article that went with the original paper. So Bello was not actually involved in the research itself. The 2.2-inch long carving was found at the Einhorn Hall archaeological site in the Harz Mountains of northern Germany. The carved giant deer toe bone is etched with six lines, making up a set of stacked chevrons, as well as four small additional parallel lines along the bottom of the carving. The parallel and regularly spaced engravings have comparable dimensions and were very probably created in a uniform approach, suggesting an intentional act, according to the study led by archaeologist Dirk Leder from the State Service for Cultural Heritage, Lower Saxony in Hanover, Germany. Radiocarbon dating places the bone in the middle Paleolithic, just before the arrival of Homo sapiens in the area. Microscopic examination of the bone suggests it was boiled in order to soften it, soften it for engraving. Now, the cuts don't resemble those typically associated with butchering, and the toe bone would have had no practical uses. The bone probably held significance due to the rarity of giant deer north of the Alps in this time period. Now, there is a small chance that the bone may have been influenced by or produced by a modern human, but they are not thought to have entered the region until some 6,000 years later. 
Bellow notes that while we can't know for sure that there wasn't a knowledge exchange between the Neanderthals and modern humans, it again wouldn't diminish the fact of their cognitive capacity. On the contrary, the capacity to learn, integrate innovation into one's own culture, and adapt to new technologies and abstract concepts should be recognized as an element of behavioral complexity, wrote Bellow. In this context, the engraved bone from Einhornhold brings Neanderthal behavior even closer to the modern behavior of Homo sapiens. And again, there's plenty of reason to think that modern humans had nothing to do with it at all, and that the Neanderthals were simply able to move toward abstract artistic and ritual practices on their own. And so again, this is a place where we really see that despite there being, uh, you know, morphological differences between uh, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. So um, you've probably seen pictures before, but one of the big um, morphological sort of indicators of a Neanderthal is that they had sort of heavier bones and they had a more um, sort of conical rib cage. So it was broader on the bottom and uh, thinner on the top whereas ours is more kind of uniform up and down. And so they were most likely adapted to living in colder weather. And so that was part of um, having their core was a little bit more broad and things like that. And so they definitely had, um, you know, differences in body plan in some respect. But the more that we, you know, find out about them, the more that intellectually and uh, culturally they seem to have been pretty close to uh, modern humans. It's generally considered that one of the big reasons why, um, you know, they didn't survive uh, when modern uh, Homo sapiens moved into places where they were is uh, in part because they didn't develop um, ranged weapons. And so that was one of the big things that uh, sort of the modern humans were able to develop were uh, weapons that were able to be um, things like spear throwers, um, atlatls, uh, and things like that. And so, um, you know, the Neanderthals weren't able to go after the same kind of game animals as uh, modern humans were. And so they were most likely outcompeted in that respect um, pretty uh, conclusively. Whereas in some of these other areas like artistic uh, expression and, um, you know, the ability to have abstract thinking and the ability to understand things like burying your dead um, and having a connection to, uh, you know, some sort of ritual practice that we tend to think of as very much about having, well, sapiens when it comes right down to it. Um, you know, they really did have those things. And so, um, you know, there is something to be said for the idea that if you could uh, pull a Neanderthal out of, um, you know, time, that if you were able to raise that Neanderthal child, 
as if they were a modern human, you might not be able to tell the difference that much. Um, you know, we don't know for certain. That's completely speculative, obviously. But it may be that cognitively we wouldn't be able to tell much of a difference. They'd obviously look different. Um, but in terms of being able to understand and grasp concepts and learn, they might be just as able to do that as any modern human baby would be able to do as well. All right, let's move on from uh, waxing uh, poetically about the idea of uh, Neanderthals and uh, their ability to uh, have abstract artistic and ritual thoughts and move on to something much more concrete. Uh, let's move on and talk about a bit of Roman engineering. So we tend to think of monumental architecture like the Colosseum or the Parthenon um, when we think of Roman engineering. But the Romans could also turn their expertise in engineering to more mundane things, such as the building of water mills. The second century Barbagal water mill complex in southern France was the largest center of mechanical power in the ancient world. The site included 16 water wheels capable of grinding an estimated 55,000 pounds of flour each day. A team of archaeologists, geologists, and experts in fluid mechanics have pieced together clues to the system of wooden chutes that channeled the water to the different water wheels efficiently. The key component they uncovered was a unique, oddly shaped water gutter that they've called an elbow flume. And so at Barbagal, a series of aqueducts brought water from, their, from the closest river to the top of the hill into which the mill was built. The water then flowed over the water wheels, which were arranged in two rows of eight wheels in parallel. The wheels were set into basins carved into the rock. The mill complex is special, says C's Pachier. He's lead author on the study, as well as a retired professor of structural geology and tectonics at the University of Mainz in Germany. It is the only example we know of a Roman multi-mill complex. Normally, you only find small mills. Now, a normal mill has a single reservoir. Water runs via a flume to the water wheel downstream. The depth of the reservoir is easily controlled with a dam and a sluice gate, which means that the flume can be a simple straight gutter that directs the water to the wheel. But the complex at Barbagal required a bit more engineering to work. It had rows of carved out basins set in a line running downhill. The basins both caught the water that fell from one wheel and acted as the source of water for the next wheel in the series. Maintaining the correct depth of water in these basins was hard to control. The researchers believe that the Romans solved this problem with the elbow flume, a roughly seven-foot-long gutter bent up at one end like the tip of a hockey stick. No such shapes are known from modern mills or from medieval mills, Pachier said. It was almost not able to be dis discerned at Barbagal either. 
The mill was made of wood, which unsurprisingly did not survive to the present day. However, the researchers got lucky. The mineral-rich water of the area left behind calcium carbonate. Even though the wood itself was gone, because being organic, it was all deteriorated, the mineral deposits, being a hard ceramic, essentially remained, said John Lambropoulos, a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Rochester who was not involved in the research. When the mill was first excavated in the 1930s, some of the deposits helped researchers make hypotheses about how the mills would have worked. Many of the carbonate casts were just fragments, but they were carefully collected and stored in the archaeological museum of the nearest city, Arles. For 80 years, these fragments have been there, somewhere in the giant basement of the museum, Pachier said. We found that some fragments fitted together into this elbow shape, and it was clearly part of a water gutter. So to understand how this odd gutter worked, the team looked at the patterns of the carbonate layer, layers which gave them information about the flow of water, as well as the dimensions of both the fragments and the mill complex itself, and then created different model versions of how the pieces might have fit together. They found that the elbow-shaped flume was used to direct water from the basement at the bottom of one wheel to the top of the next water wheel. But just directing the flow wasn't enough. The engineers had to control both the speed of the water as it dropped into the next basin and also make sure that it hit the water wheel in the correct way. This is where the elbow came in. The steep drop of the water at the beginning of the elbow gave the water the required acceleration, while the longer straight part of the flume controlled the water's deposition onto the wheel below. Now, we can't be absolutely certain that this is the way it was set up, but the signs all point to the Romans having understood fluid dynamics in a way not previously appreciated. The elbow flume is not going to change the way in which we see the world, but there could be other things in archaeology which can help us find some cheap solutions to problems we have, Pachier said. What it shows is that, also in antiquity, people were creative, they had a problem, and they had to find a creative solution. Okay, so we are going to take a break now and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we are going to talk about a different kind of creative solution here in uh, the Americas. So please do stay tuned for that in just a few moments. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. Hey, everyone. DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. 
Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Steve in Lakewood, Colorado wants to know, what's the proper way to dispose of used household batteries? Well, Steve, alkaline batteries, the most widely used type, contains zinc, which can harm certain aquatic species. But federal regulators, unlike some states, do not consider them dangerous enough to require special treatment. Check out earth911.org to see if anyone collects alkaline batteries in your area. If not, look up Battery Solutions or the Big Green Box, who will recycle them for a fee. Rechargeable batteries, like those found in billions of cell phones, should definitely be recycled because they contain dangerous heavy metals like cadmium and lithium. However, thousands of stores nationwide take them back. Visit calltorecycle.org to find one near you. Finally, honor the mantra, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Fewer gadgets is a sure cure for disposal angst. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Sundays from 4 to 6, please join Adam on the air for Metal Education. Each week, we'll delve into a different area of the genre, take requests, and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. That's WXOJ-FM Metal Education with Adam on the Air every Sunday. See you there. Okay, we are back. And as promised, we are going to talk about a different kind of creative solution. Recently, a cache of repurposed Spanish objects is helping to tell the story of Hernando de Soto's ill-fated exploration of the Southwest. Sorry, of the Southeast, I should say. Archaeologists have discovered more than 80 metal objects in Mississippi thought to have been collected by the Chickasaw after they routed the the explorer's forces in uh, the 1500s. And so the researchers believe that the objects, many of which had been repurposed by the Chickasaw residents into household tools and ornaments, were abandoned by the Spaniards when they fled a Chickasaw attack that followed a breakdown in relationships between the groups in 1541. And so the indigenous populations were able to recover axe heads, blades, 
nails, and other items made of iron, lead, and copper alloy. These were in turn refashioned with pieces of Spanish horseshoes, becoming scrapers, barrel bands into cutting tools, and bits of copper into pendants. The cache was found at a site now known as Stark Farms in northeastern Mississippi. According to Charles Cobb, the study's lead author and Florida Museum of Natural History Lockwood Chair in Historical Archaeology, the abundance of the finds makes the area unique. Typically, we might find a handful of European objects in connection with a high-status person or some other special context, Cobb said. But this must have been more of an open season, a pulse of goods that became widely available for a short period of time. If their interpretation is correct, this will mark the site as only the second confirmed site of contact with the DeSoto, with DeSoto and his men, the other being the historic site of the Appalachian capital of Anhyaca in present-day Tallahassee. DeSoto arrived in Mississippi in 1540, having already moved through the southeast for more than a year with around 600 people, hundreds of horses and pigs, and heavy equipment in tow. Now, DeSoto had been an important figure in the downfall of the Inca Empire, and so basically he was hoping to find another empire of gold, this time in the southeast. His path through the region was characterized by oscillations of alliances and wars with the indigenous populations in the area. And so, of course, you know, there were a lot of different peoples in these areas. Um, you know, one of the things that people talk about is the idea that, you know, we have this idea that there was one kind of people in different areas of um, the Americas. And so you have this idea of like sort of a homogeneity in uh, indig indigenous populations, but there were a bunch of different, um, you know, confederations and tribes and um, villages and cities and all sorts of people living in this region already who, you know, didn't really have any use for the Spanish uh, in a lot of respects and sometimes, you know, did want to have access to those trade goods and those metals that were not readily available uh, to their populations. And so the Spaniards started off somewhat friendly uh, with the Chickasaw and their leader, Chick Chikasha Minko. Uh, I apologize. I'm probably really mispronouncing some of uh, this, but um, I'm doing my best. Who offered them a modest village to spend the winter. But as time went on, the Spaniards began to, well, wear on the Chickasaw, uh, not surprisingly, uh, executing two men and cutting off the hands of another accused of stealing pigs. The Chickasaw, who grew, who grew maize, probably also, frankly, got sick of having to provide for these basically intruders on their land. The last straw came when DeSoto demanded that Chickasha Minko assign hundreds of Chickasaw as basically porters to carry the Spaniards' equipment to their next destination. And so basically, this is where uh, 
negotiations broke down, as they say. Uh, Soon afterwards, the Chickasaw launched a surprise night attack and torched the Spanish camp, killing at least a dozen men and many horses and pigs. The Spaniards withdrew about a mile away, but were again assaulted. Though they were better prepared for the second assault, they still soon uh, moved north away from um, the Chickasaw, having lost most of their supplies and livestock. And so presumably it was this point that the Chickasaw collected their windfall of European goods. And so... Uh, as you know, you probably know, normally such goods were given out sparingly to local le- leaders, basically as either trade or bribes. It's kind of like, like inflation, Cobb said. You don't want too much stuff to get out or that gift will be devalued. That's what make this, makes this site unusual. The battle was decisive and the area was left largely free of Europeans for the next 150 years. This research shows how Chickasaws adapted to invasion by alien intruders and secured their reputation as unconquered and unconquerable, said study co-author Brad Leib, director of Chickasaw Archaeology for the Chickasaw Nation's Heritage Preservation Division. The findings are remarkable in their success in addressing a baseline event in Chickasaw cultural history, the first encounter with Hernando de Soto and the Spanish invaders. And so the researchers actually weren't even looking for this encounter specifically when they arrived in the area. The Chickasaw Nation, unfortunately, having later uh, been removed from their traditional homelands to Oklahoma by the U.S. Department of War in 1837, had commissioned the team to excavate and survey the area for ancestral sites and to provide Chickasaw University students with the ability to connect to their heritage through archaeological fieldwork. The team focused on environmental factors in the movement of people across the landscape, which radiocarbon dating shows had been inhabited since the 14th or 15th century. The team had brought metal detectors as they tend to be an easy way to find objects of European origin. Once they deployed the detectors, though, they basically began to make hits everywhere. They soon uncovered a small cannonball, a mouth harp, and what may be a Spanish bridal bit with a golden cross. And so the remains line up with the Spanish accounts of the area of De Soto's 1541 battle, though it's important to note that they have yet to locate either remains of a burned village or remains of those horses and pigs. So clearly this is a place that is near where those events most likely took place, but it is not the specific site yet. And so there is some ambiguity, obviously, until they're able to actually find those remains. And so if they were to find a, um, you know, a large midden full of horse and pig um, skeletal remains, that would be a big um, 
you know, boon towards really pinning down that this is indeed the place where this happened. Um, but given the other materials that they found, it's a very good uh, probability that this is indeed the site of that battle. And so the Chickasaw mainly used bone, cane, or stone as raw material for cutting and scraping tools. And so, again, some objects were left as is, but many were worked to better resemble traditional tools. One of the most stunning things we found is an exact iron replica of a Native American stone Kelt, or axe head, Cobb said. I've never seen anything like this in the Southeast before. And so it's very interesting and very cool. And, you know, there is much to celebrate in this repurposed technology. The idea that these people were able to, you know, drive out what one would consider to be a superior force and to be able to have you know, triumphed and been able to hold on to their sovereignty for, you know, that next 150 years. But there are also items from the darker side of this story that were found, including chain links that had been pulled apart and had their edges sharpened. The Spanish brought reams of chain with them to shackle Native Americans as captives and porters, Cobb said. This is evidence of some of the first examples of European enslavement of people in what is now the U.S. The site also represents a particular period of material exploration between Native populations and European invaders. In the 1500s, a thimble might be turned into a bangle. By the late 1700s, a thimble is a thimble, Cobb said. You tend to see a more regular adoption of goods over time. As for DeSoto, he died of a fever on the banks of the Mississippi River in 1542, having failed to establish any kind of permanent Spanish presence in the Southeast. His remaining men made rafts and floated south to Mexico, where they returned to Spain. There, they reinvented themselves, not as failed conquistadors, but as adventurers and survivors. There was a thriving industry in explorer and survival tales, which is probably one of the reasons why some of these individuals provided their accounts. From that perspective, it was very modern, Cobb notes. Okay. So we are going to move across the globe to Japan, where we are going to look at an unusual set of skeletal remains. Um, and so just as a warning, this is going to be talking about a shark attack. So uh, as you might know, it is Shark Week on a certain set of cable television channels. And I always like to remind people, and I will do it later on again, that humans are much more dangerous to sharks than sharks are to humans. But there is, of course, the occasional exception. And so I am going to be talking about some of the wounds that this young man um, encountered. And so uh, just as a warning, in case anyone uh, doesn't want to hear about the uh inevitable um, results of a fatal shark attack. <laughs> okay, so a young man in Japan was attacked by a large shark, perhaps a great white or a tiger shark. 
the wounds inflicted were quite devastating, including the loss of a leg, a hand, and both feet. Despite this terrible attack, the man's remains were recovered and interred so that he could be discovered some 3,000 years later to be able to, uh, to testify to his unfortunate demise. Now known as Sukum Sukumo number 24, he represents one of over 170 skeletons excavated from a shell mound cemetery of the Jomon people in early, from early Japan. Now, the burial site was actually accidentally discovered in the 1860s during a construction project. The calcium carbonate in the shells helps to protect the skeletons from the relatively acidic soil in Japan, said lead author J. Alyssa White, a um, philosophy candidate in archaeology at the University of Oxford. A new analysis of the bones has been published in the Journal of Archaeological Science Reports. Now, originally examined in the early 1920s and examined many times over in the past, the massive gouges, pits, and slashes on his bones were not identified as being associated with a shark attack until White and her team re-examined the bones. This isn't to say that other researchers wouldn't have known that he died violently, but that his death would have been perplexing, as tools and weapons at the time would not have matched his wounds and other than black bears and wolves, Japan isn't home to large carnivorous predators. So an animal attack would have been a less obvious conclusion. But given the nat violent nature of the wounds, the team pondered whether the Jomon people might have been the target of predation, according to co-author Masato Nakasukasa, a professor at Kyoto University. Now, they knew that the Jomon people were reliant on the sea for their livelihoods, and so the team then were able to consider looking at ocean predators. And so this eventually led the team to George Burgess, director emeritus of the Florida Program for Shark Research and curator emeritus of the International Shark Attack File. Burgess confirmed that it was indeed the work of at least one shark. It is now recorded as the oldest known shark attack on record by 2,000 years. In all, the skeleton had some 790 traumatic lesions from shark teeth with deep cuts, fractured ribs, bite marks, and puncture wounds being spread across the skeleton's remaining components. The team used 3D imaging, CAT scans, and even GIS, or the Geographic Information System, which is usually used in data visualization of geographic data sets. Archaeologists have a long history of working with technology, explained John Punset, research fellow in spatial archaeology at the University of Oxford. They also have a habit of using technology to do things it wasn't necessarily intended to. Think LIDAR. Uh, LIDAR was originally developed for uh, military use. 
in the end, the team created a powerful research tool, which enables researchers to recreate trauma to bones on a 3D image of a human body. For this case, it included White systematically adding the hundreds of shark tooth injuries on specific parts of each bone in order to be able to see the whole picture. This was incredibly helpful to be able to see all of his injuries in 3D when we were beginning to piece together the pattern of attack, she noted. The technology represents a leap forward in imaging of trauma on bones. To the best of our knowledge, this is the first time that GIS has been used to map the human body in 3D, Poussette said. The distribution of the trauma on the skeleton presented challenges for traditional 2D methods of recording, not least how to represent the damage to the inside of the ribcage. Working with the 3D model of the skeleton allowed us to document all of the trauma. It also allowed us to understand the impact that the skeletal trauma would have had on other parts of the human body. The visualization of the blood vessels that would have been severed by the trauma on the lower left leg highlight this impact in a visceral way. And so, given the extensive wounds, the researchers believe that the death would have been swift. Once again, though, it is important to remember that these attacks are vanishingly rare. Burgess points out that on average, there are 75 shark attacks a year on humans, and only six of those are fatal. Again, we are much more of a threat. It's estimated that humans kill 100 million, 100 million sharks annually, which is currently leading to the probable extinction of several species of these amazing fish, which have survived in the deep for millions of years before humans began to attack them. But for number 24, we know that despite his terrible injuries, he was carefully recovered, including his severed leg, and buried in the customary manner for his time. And so I think that's really cool um, that... We can know so much about this person, but that also we can know that despite his horrific um, demise, people still cared about him and he was still able to be, um, you know, recovered and interred in the way of his people. Um, I think that's really great. Um, okay, so finally tonight, uh, archaeologists in Finland have found a wooden snake figure that they believe would have belonged to a Neolithic shaman. The carving was found at the Jarvinsuo 1 site in southwest Finland. Jarvinsuo, maybe? Um, again, pronunciations. I try and look up pronunciations where I can, but I couldn't find one for this one. Uh, the site was first discovered in the 1950s by a ditch-digging team, but was not fully excavated. The site was reopened in 2019. Previous digs have uncovered fishing tools and pottery, along with a really cool wooden scoop featuring a handle carved in the shape of a bear's head. And so the site was occupied between around 4000 and 2000 BCE. 
Luckily, the area was a former lakeshore, making long-term preservation of wooden artifacts possible. So whereas in France, all of those wooden artifacts deteriorated and, uh, you know, rotted away in this sort of boggy lakeshore, these artifacts are able to be preserved. I have seen many extraordinary things in my work as a wetland archaeologist, but the discovery of this figurine made me utterly speechless and gave me the shivers. Satu Koivisto, the lead author of the study and an archaeologist at the University of Turku, said in an emailed statement, The carving is a single piece of wood and measures 21 inches long and just over an inch thick. The head is slightly raised with an open mouth. And so actually, uh, if you go to evidencebasederata.com, I did link to a picture of the figurine, um, just as an FYI. And so the snake looks like it's slithering or swimming. It looks very much like a grass snake, Natrix natrix, or a European adder, Vipera baris. And it's interesting. I've actually seen a few garter snakes here in Massachusetts lately, which is cool because I hadn't seen one in years prior to this summer. So um, I've also seen toads in my front yard this year, which again is, is good because, you know, these are kind of indicator species showing that hopefully the local environment is doing pretty good these days. But anyways, getting back to the snake carving. <laughs> The figurine was lying on its right side, either having been lost, discarded, or intentionally disposited amidst the thick lakeshore vegetation, wrote the scientists in the study. They state that the carving is unique in both style and character, with no other artifacts from this period and area being comparable. Now, the figure can't be positively identified with a ritual purpose. However, the researchers note that snakes are loaded with symbolic meaning in both finno in both Finno-Ugric and Sami cosmology, and shamans were believed to be able to transform into snakes. Moreover, the land of the dead was believed to lie underwater, which seems interesting given the wetlands setting of the Yarvinsuo figurine. In addition, rock art dating to the same time period found in the region depicts human figures holding snake-like objects, which makes the connection even stronger. And so, you know, there's always this idea that sort of everything that doesn't have a actual function is tied to ritual. But in this case, it seems pretty solid that uh, this was a ritual object and um, was probably owned by someone who was fairly important, um, maybe a shaman or a, um, you know, chief or um, however you want to uh, describe it, um, the head of the village. It's always hard. I, I don't like using the words um, tribe and chief. I think they're very much, you know, outdated and outmoded. Um, so I apologize for using those. Um, and so, um, yeah, but I think this is a very cool, uh, discovery and you should definitely go and check it out. If you haven't already seen a picture of it, um, you can look it up or you can go to uh, the website and see it there. All right. That is all the time I have for tonight. And I thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.
The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.